Good morning. Uh, as Mark said, my name is Chuck, and it is a uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, my wife, on behalf of my wife, and I thank you for your warmth and hospitality every time we come out. I know it's a several months between when I've been here last time, but it's always nice to see familiar faces and be welcomed, so thank you. This morning's scripture comes from Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. You can follow along in your bulletin or on page 998 in your Bibles at the pews. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is the word of the Lord. Picture this. You're not a Christian, but you have some friends who are Christians. So you start talking, you start catching up, and you ask your friend, the Christian, how he or she is doing. And they look at you with a big smile on their face and they say, I'm great. I'm saved. Now, as a non-Christian, that sounds a little weird. But even as a Christian, I think we all have to admit that that phrase, I'm saved, sounds a little strange. What does it mean when a Christian says, I'm saved? What does it mean and why do we even say it? When you hear that phrase, when I hear that phrase, I often think of superheroes saving damsels in distress or firemen pulling children out of a burning building, saving someone's life. But as weird as it might sound for someone to say it about their faith, about a particular set of beliefs, we also have to admit that it's actually pretty foundational when it comes to faith. And really, it's a pretty foundational question whether you've been a Christian your entire life, or you're a brand new Christian, or even you're not quite sure what you believe, and you're still asking questions. And even if you're an atheist, even if you don't believe in God, you can still ask that question. What does it mean to say, I'm saved? You might say it sarcastically. You might say to strike a blow to Christians as if there's no way to ever know that you could be saved. But you would still ask it. What does it mean when someone says, I'm saved? In this morning's passage, we're reading part of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his friend, whose name is Titus, who was living on the Greek island known as Crete. Now, many scholars believe Titus was a church planter, So rather than being in Crete to work with the already established churches there, Paul left Titus to plant churches, to create a network of Christians living amongst the Cretans. And the Cretans, well, Paul describes them in the first chapter of Titus, and he calls them disobedient and unfit for any good work, saying their minds and their consciences are defiled. So how do we get from a group of people being defiled, and unfit for any good work, 
to this morning's passage where we hear of God's loving kindness and his righteousness and his mercy. That's what I want to talk about today. You see, what Paul gives us in this entire letter to Titus, and especially in these few verses in this third and final chapter, is a blueprint of basically everything about the Christian faith. And this blueprint isn't given to one Christian simply for other Christians. It's actually given to a Christian to share with an entire community, regardless if those in the community were Christians or not, regardless if they were defiled and disobedient. What Paul is writing to Titus about is for everyone. And by examining that, I hope we can begin to answer the question and maybe make it seem a little less weird. What does it mean when you or I say, I'm saved? Now, to get there, I want to see if we can get through a few things this morning. First, we have to recognize what is being offered to us and why Paul is giving it to Titus in the first place for both Christians and non-Christians. We have to understand what it means when we say to be a Christian means to be reborn. And we have to understand that recognizing this and being reborn leads to you being remade. So recognize, reborn, and remade. When I say we need to recognize what is being offered to us here through what Paul is writing to Titus, we need a quick snapshot of the first two chapters of this letter. First, we know, we already know that Paul has a certain view of the citizens of Crete. But this isn't a view that Paul holds from his own experience or some distorted perspective. In fact, all those nasty things about the Cretans that we've already heard, that they're disobedient, they're defiled, they're unfit for any good work, and so on. When Paul mentions those in the first chapter of Titus, he's actually quoting a Cretan. He's quoting a member of this community. He's turning to the community's own perspective to describe themselves. Now, often when society thinks about Christianity or evangelicalism or organized religion or whatever word or phrase you want to use, we can quickly conjure up negative opinions and unfair images. Depending on your own experiences with Christians, you may have very personal events in mind that paint a specific picture of the church. You might think the church embodies what Paul talks about in chapter 1, or maybe more realistically, how Paul talks in chapter 1 of Titus. Think about it. Here's a Christian writing a letter to another Christian, and he sounds a little judgmental. If you pulled out those verses alone, pulled them out of context, you'd get a snapshot of a bully. Now, for many, that's where the opinions and perspectives of Christianity end. Judgmental, mean, unable to put yourself in someone else's shoes. But for Paul, though he might have sounded judgmental, through the rest of his letter to Titus, he was actually displaying an incredible amount of love and care for the entire community of Crete, Christian or not. We see this in the following two chapters as Paul begins writing and pushing Titus to apply his faith to all those around him. And in fact, we see Paul chastise himself in verse 3 of this morning's passage. No longer can Paul be viewed as some judgmental stereotype who can't empathize with others. What does he say? In verse 3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Though Paul says we, he's speaking from personal experience. This is his personal testimony to Titus. Paul is putting himself in the shoes of those in Crete, those, who's Titus, those who Titus is working with, and he's saying, we're all like this. We're all disobedient. We're all defiled. We're all foolish. In effect, Paul is saying, we all need help. Now, that's not a very judgmental person. That's an empathetic person. 
John Chrysostom, he's a 4th century theologian, he once looked at verse 3 of this passage, and he explained it like this. One who breaks down the wall and steals something from within is not the only burglar, but also he who corrupts justice and wrongfully takes something from his neighbor. Let us not, then, overlook our own faults and sit in judgment on those of others. You see, this isn't a Christian or a non-Christian thing. Though Chrysostom is a Christian theologian, anyone of any faith or belief system could have said this. And we'd all probably nod our heads in agreement. Don't overlook your own faults. Don't sit in judgment on the faults of others. That's what Paul is doing here. And by putting this in his letter, he's displaying and embodying how Titus needs to act to all those around him. Paul doesn't just say this, though, as some feel-good platitude in his letter. He says this because he believes it's rooted in the very thing that changed his own life, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Read on. Right after verse 3, Paul begins talking about the goodness and the loving kindness of God, his Savior. To him, these things are connected, and to Titus, these things would have made sense. But imagine being a citizen of Crete, and you hear this. After all, don't forget, they already had a low view of themselves. Those nasty things that Paul used to describe them came from their own community. Scholars all agree that the citizens at that time were well known for their immorality. So when they would hear something like what Paul is saying, do you think it would have made sense? Well, let's look at ourselves today. Does this even make sense to us? Does it make sense to look at yourself and say, we're foolish, we're disobedient, we're led astray, we're slaves to passions and pleasures? I think from a broad societal standpoint, it doesn't make sense. We're not supposed to admit our faults, we're not supposed to call ourselves fools, and we're definitely not slaves to any passions or pleasures. In fact, what we're told is that religion will make you a slave, and that if you want to find true freedom, you find it in pursuing your passions and pleasures and making those the center of your lives. Those narratives that our culture tell us generally boil down to just a few things, and you have heard all of these things in some form or fashion. Be true to yourself. Do whatever makes you happy, and no one can tell you what to do. Be true to yourself. Do whatever makes you happy, and nobody can tell you what to do. We're surrounded with these narratives, and we're surrounded with constant pressure to find our identities in whatever we deem worthy. But what Paul is saying here is, I can't be true to myself because I'm foolish. I can't do whatever makes me happy because I'm a slave to those things, to my pleasures. And I have to obey someone or something. It's the opposite of what we hear on a daily basis. Paul has a response, but it only makes sense because it's rooted in his faith and the work of Jesus Christ. Consider it. Decisions Christians make today really don't make any sense without the work of Jesus Christ, without understanding the gospel. If you're a Christian and you tell a non-Christian that the money you make isn't really yours, but it belongs to some God you believe in, it sounds kind of weird. Or if you're a Christian and you tell your friends, I'm saved, they'll probably roll their eyes, they might shrug their shoulders, and they'll change the subject because it doesn't make any sense to them. I heard one pastor describe it like this. If you know Jesus and you know the gospel, when he tells you to find your identity in him, whether it's your money or sex or how you treat others around you regardless of their beliefs, when he tells you that, you follow him and it makes perfect sense. The same pastor who said that also shared this quote and it goes something like this. 
Those who can't hear the music think the dancers are crazy. Those who can't hear the music think the dancers are crazy. Now, when I first heard that, it made me think of a silent disco. I don't know if you've heard of or seen a silent disco. I've seen them in New York City. I've seen them on TV and in movies. Uh, It's this big dance party. So think of a disco. It's this big dance party. Tons of people are dancing. There's a DJ spinning music. But you on the outside, you're not part of the, the, the party. You on the outside, you can't hear a thing. You don't hear music. There's not music blasting. But everybody's dancing. Everybody has their hands in the air. Everybody's having a really good time. But you can't hear anything. But you notice everybody, not just the DJ, but all the dancers, everybody, they have headphones on. And they're dancing. And so you realize that these people hear the music through the headphones. But on the outside, without the headphones, you can't hear anything. It just looks like a bunch of crazy people dancing to silence. But with the headphones, it makes perfect sense. You dance in response to what you hear. That's what the gospel is to Paul. And that's the encouragement and the guidance that he's giving to his friend Titus. No matter how the people of Crete were living their lives, Paul is saying, this probably sounds crazy, Titus, but don't judge them, for you were once like them. That's the vision Paul had for Titus's church planning in Crete and the vision all churches should have for how we interact with and care for our communities. So that's what's being offered to us. That's what we need to recognize in this passage. That's the foundation of this entire letter to Titus. And that's the beginning to understanding that question, what does it mean when you or I say, I'm saved? And so beginning to understand that means we have to also understand what it means to be reborn. For many, being saved and reborn are synonymous. Christians find a new life when they come to faith, and thus they've been reborn. Now, this isn't some buzzword made up by a pastor or anything like that. It actually comes straight from the teaching of Jesus Christ. You can find it in the Gospel of John in chapter 3. Jesus talks with a Jewish man whose name is Nicodemus. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, of course, that makes no sense to Nicodemus. Think about that silent disco. Think about standing on the outside. Jesus is saying something that Nicodemus doesn't understand. And so he calls him out. And he says, this makes no sense. How can a man be born again if he is old? How do you enter a second time into your mother's womb? You see, Nicodemus is still missing those headphones. Jesus tells him that this is not a birth of flesh, like you or I might know, but a birth of the Spirit. In John 3, 7, Jesus says, Don't worry about this phrase, born again. Worry about what it means to be born of the Spirit. So let's look at this morning's passage. Paul talks about being reborn. In verse 5, he says, God, our Savior, saved us. And how did he save us? Through the Holy Spirit. This is a rebirth, not of flesh, and not of any good thing that a person does, but of rebirth of the Spirit. Now, the translation we heard this morning uses the word regeneration instead of rebirth. Other translations will use that word, rebirth. But regardless of what English word you want to go with, the original Greek word that Paul used here was very clear. And the reason some translations use the word regeneration is because as weird and as crazy as the word rebirth might sound, they don't think it's strong enough. The original Greek word is actually a regenesis. It's a new genesis, a new origin, a new beginning. That's what this word literally means. Paul is talking about a new origin through the Holy Spirit. That's why we have to recognize what Paul is writing about before jumping into this talk of 
rebirth and regeneration, it's pretty weighty stuff. It's pretty lofty ideas, and it makes no sense without understanding the gospel. It's important to note that the Greek word that Paul used actually wasn't a Christian term originally. It's not some word Paul invented. It's not a word that Jesus used before anyone else. It was actually being used well before Jesus ever showed up. I'll explain it how it was used like I heard a pastor explain it uh, several years ago. And he goes way back in history to examine the word. You can find where this Greek word comes from traced all the way back to a group of philosophers called the Stoics. They began sometime around the 3rd century BC, which is well before Christ ever came onto the scene. Now, while you or I might think reborn or regeneration uh, is strictly a religious term, these philosophers were using it in a different way. Stoics believed that self-control was how you overcame bad emotions, that being a good, good person meant cultivating morality. And for them, the virtues of morality were wisdom, courage, justice, temperance. In a very basic sense, when they used this word, Stoics believed that the regeneration of a person would happen time and time again because the universe would start over. The universe would regenerate. In a broader sense of philosophy, you might look at this word as meaning reincarnation, that when we die, we regenerate into another type of matter, to another being or another creature. That was also pretty common for philosophers. So this word was being used at least for 300 years before Christ was even born. And so what does Christ do? Well, you can look this up later, meditate on it this week. But in Matthew 19, Jesus completely reorients its meaning. He takes this word that philosophers around him and his followers were using, and he totally redefines it. He still uses it to mean a new genesis, a new beginning, a regeneration But he doesn't mean it's something that just happens because the universe starts over or that it's some generic term or type of new beginning because we're simply reincarnated when we die. Jesus is using it because when you understand the work that he was doing, the work of Jesus Christ, your life is literally new. Your origin story is new. You have a completely new beginning. And here in Titus 3, Paul completely contradicts that Stoic view of the word. The Stoics who believe that you must stick to those virtues of morality, and that's the only way that you could ever be considered a good person. Here in this morning's passage, Paul is saying it has nothing to do with how good you are or the works that you do, but everything to do with the goodness and the loving kindness of God. That is the power of the gospel and one that dares to go against any other set of beliefs, any other faith system, any other religion, in order to experience this new genesis, in order to be reborn, in order to be saved, you can't do anything to achieve it. You can't pray extra hard. You can't treat your neighbors extra nice. You can't earn extra points uh, to get it. Regeneration happens only because of God, only because of the Holy Spirit, and only because of Jesus Christ. Remember when I said these few verses in Titus were the blueprint of everything about Christianity? What does it mean to be saved? It means that you're regenerated, and it means that you're born again, and it means you have this completely new beginning. But if all this is true, then how do Christians look at a group like the Stoic philosophers, or honestly anybody today, who claim that to live a good life means to follow those certain virtues, like wisdom and morality and justice? Those aren't bad things. Those are things Christians hold up very high. And certainly you don't have to be a Christian 
to follow those things. You don't have to be a Christian to understand the importance of justice or the need to have wisdom when making decisions. So what's the point then? Why does one even need to be reborn? Well, to that question, to this question, can't you be a good person and not a Christian? Honestly, the answer, if you're rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the answer to that question is no. There aren't good people who aren't Christians. But that's not because Christians think that only Christians are good people. It's because as a Christian who is rooted in and understands the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work that he did, you don't believe that there are any good people, regardless of what you believe or don't believe. I say that, but it's easy to sort of roll your eyes. I get it. You might not really buy that. You can look at years and years of church history and maybe your own experiences within the church or with people who go to church, and that kind of mentality isn't always prevalent, right? We've already talked about this, this idea of being judgmental, and it's not a stretch to say that there are Christians and people who claim to be Christians all over the world who might say they don't think they're better than other people with their words, but their actions convey a completely different meaning. But you see, the problem isn't the bad or the good that we see out there. It's the bad and the good that we see inside of ourselves, inside of my own heart. Even my best actions are tainted with pride and fear. Even my most noble desire is rooted in selfish ambition. Look at Paul. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, and even he recognizes his own foolishness, his own disobedience, his own sin. The deeper you get into your faith, the closer you get with God, the more you read and understand this gospel, the more you become aware of both the universality and the pervasiveness of sin. Now, that doesn't sound very hopeful or happy. But again, you can actually find joy in all of this. And that is the power of the gospel. The joy that can be found in all of this is that once we recognize what is offered to us, once we're regenerated, then we're remade. You'll find no other religion or set of beliefs that says you can't do anything to achieve goodness. You are not good. The depths of your heart are dark and sinful. The only hope that you have is the grace that is freely offered to you based on nothing you can accomplish or nothing you can do more of. And yet, even though you can't accomplish anything to achieve it, you're remade in perfection. You are remade in in the image of the God who created you. No other faith makes that claim. And in that, there is an immense amount of joy. And through that, we are remade. Let's look at the rest of this Titus passage because when we're remade, it affects our entire life and how we treat everyone around us. Remember when I said this wasn't a letter given to one Christian for other Christians. This letter is meant to shape how Christians interact with and love their communities, regardless of faith, regardless of religious differences, regardless of any personal issues that might exist. The very opening of this chapter is a reminder that Christians in Crete are actually called to be submissive to the rulers and authorities around them and to be obedient and to speak evil of no one, to avoid fighting, and to do all of this with what? With gentleness and courtesy. And toward who? All people. All people. This is the remaking that we receive through our regeneration with the Holy Spirit. We can't achieve this regeneration through our actions, but when we accept what is so freely offered to us through the grace that Jesus Christ 
offers through the kindness of God, our Savior, and through the renewal of the Holy Spirit, our actions are also regenerated. And we are remade. And all of this comes because of that one word in verse 5, mercy. Because of God's mercy for his people. Now when I think of mercy, when I hear that word mercy, I always go back to the great 80s movie, uh, The Karate Kid. In The Karate Kid, it's this classic underdog story, and the bad guy, Johnny Lawrence, he's training in the Cobra Kai Dojo. And every single day, Johnny Lawrence and all of his uh, friends are being pounded with the idea that mercy is a bad thing. In fact, there's one scene where the sensei tells all of his students in the dojo, we do not train to be merciful here. Mercy is for the weak. That theme is prevalent with Johnny Lawrence throughout the movie. Mercy is for the weak. Mercy is undesirable. Mercy leads to failing. And so, in the final scene, when Johnny is sparring with the karate kid himself, he shows no mercy. And he does an unethical attack. And in the end, this attack actually leads to Johnny Lawrence's defeat. The opposite of mercy, Lawrence's ruthlessness and his cruelty, actually opened himself up for the ultimate weakness that made him vulnerable, and he was defeated. When God looks at his people, he could see exactly what Paul describes to Titus. He could see foolish, disobedient people who have been led astray and who are slaves to their passions and pleasures. But instead, he sees people who are covered in his loving kindness and goodness, who have been regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit, who are justified by his grace to the extent of being considered heirs of eternal life. That's what mercy is. The clearest way to understand this for me is a simple definition of mercy that most uh, dictionaries give. Mercy is often defined as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it, whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Someone in that definition is you and me. And yet, in his mercy, God doesn't choose to punish or harm you and me. And instead, he chooses to offer us a new life. It's through that mercy that we're remade, and our lives, and thus our actions, are completely changed. That's the difference between the words religion and the gospel. When you follow other religions, or when you build your own personal set of beliefs based on what you and you alone think is right, you're beholden to achieve something before you could ever be accepted, before you could ever be considered good. The gospel, when you truly understand it, when you have those headphones on and you can hear the music, the gospel is you being accepted, you being reborn before you do anything. And then following that, you obey. You change your life. Your actions are remade. If you're regenerated, if you're saved, it's not because of anything you've done or could do but completely because of God's mercy. What does it mean when a Christian says, I'm saved? On some level, that question is impossible to answer because we're merely humans trying to talk of these high theological ideas of eternal life and everlasting salvation. And yet, on another level, it's actually quite simple. What does it mean when you or I say, I'm saved? It means a recognition of what is offered to us based not on our character, but on the character of God. It means being reborn and not in some crazy, physically impossible way, but in the sense of starting a new life. 
We're being regenerated to live new. And it means we and our actions are remade and we're transformed. It means we love those around us, everyone, regardless of their faith or their beliefs. It means the way we approach our money, our jobs, our relationships, everything is transformed and everything is reoriented toward Christ. We're remade because of God's love for us, because of his mercy. Now, if this doesn't make sense to you, if you feel like you're standing on the outside of that silent disco where everyone else is smiling and dancing, that's okay. You can just put the headphones on. Keep pursuing. Keep asking questions. Keep doubting. Keep pushing. Dive deeper. Care for those around you. Those headphones, it's spending time in the scripture. It's praying. But it's not just that. It's living your life in community with others. It's not always easy to put them on or to keep them on. But once you do, once you hear that music, it will begin to make sense. And you know what? It's not always easy. Even after you're remade, even after you think you get this, you're still going to mess up. Think about refurbished electronics. I don't know if any of you have ever bought a refurbished laptop or iPhone But think about that. What's going on? On the inside, the electronics are new. They're pristine. They're working perfectly. And on the outside, might be some dirt on the phone, might have a crack on the screen, might be scratched up. But on the inside, it's like a brand new electronic. That's the same with us being remade. We're completely transformed, and yet we're still not going to get everything right every single time. We're still going to struggle. We're still going to have questions. We're still going to get confused, and that's okay. John Newton, who wrote the great church hymn, Amazing Grace, he once said about everything that we're talking about, the world can neither understand or believe this. However, they who have tasted that the Lord is gracious will not be disputed out of their spiritual senses. If they are competent judges, whether they ever saw the light or felt the beams of the sun, they are no less certain that by the knowledge of the gospel, they are brought into a state of communion with God. Regardless of what the last week has been like for you, regardless of the stresses or distractions you might be facing at this very moment, we all have the opportunity to encounter the majesty and the wonder of God and to turn toward that graciousness. It doesn't matter who you are. When you see that light, when you feel those beams of the sun, When you put those headphones on, you experience something that is unlike anything else in this world, and you are truly remade. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for bringing us together this morning to worship, to encounter you, to come just a little bit closer to your kingdom. Lord, I pray that the words that Paul wrote to Titus that were inspired directly from the life and work of Jesus Christ, that they might ring true in our hearts as well, that we might look to those around us, that we might look at the things in our life that we hold so dear, and that we might reorient ourselves toward you. Lord, regenerate us, remake us so that we can follow you, so that our actions, so that our desires are centered around you. We thank you for your word, Lord, this morning. We thank you for this worship time. We lift all these things up to you. In your heavenly name we pray. Amen.